This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash missionlog. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss, the official Star Trek graphic novels collection. Get your first volume countdown for only $4.95 when you sign up today at eaglemoss.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 235, The Chase. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we follow the tiniest clues and hope to unravel the biggest mysteries, one episode of Star Trek at a time. This week's show, The Chase, the one where John Houseman plays a stern Harvard law professor. That would make for a scintillating episode of TNG, especially with Picard's new career as a lecturer, but now... Uh, this is actually the episode where Picard's old professor shows up with a challenge for his student. Oh, so it's the paper chase. Except for the deeply metaphysical aspects, and the spaceships, and the aliens. More deep thoughts about Star Trek in a moment, but first, a word from Blue Apron. A better way to cook. Sometimes, you know, you want to go to the grocery store and see what looks good. Other times, you do not. I, I know that's very true for me. So that is where Blue Apron comes in. Start by seeing which recipes look good, or you can let them pick for you. They do the shopping, dropping off everything right at your door, and the food is all good. Blue Apron has partnered with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S., their seafood is sustainably sourced, the beef, chicken, and pork are responsibly raised, and produce comes from farms that practice regenerative farming. Now, John, I know this is your favorite part, the part where mm -hmm. I say things about food. Oh, yeah. And, and you make nummy noises, not unlike the nummy noises made in uh, Young Frankenstein. So get ready. Just wait. Just wait. Because here it comes, yeah. A few of the featured meals this month include a beef teriyaki stir-fry with sugar snap peas and lime rice, mm. <laughs> baked spinach and egg flatbread with sautéed asparagus and lemon aioli, mm. three cheese and baby broccoli stromboli with tomato and oregano dipping sauce, mm. and finally crispy salmon and roasted potato salad with pickled mustard seeds and creme fraiche sauce. Mm. <laughs> now... As good as all that sounds to John, and hopefully to you as well, that's just some of the choices that are available to you. So what you can do is, um, is, is see what looks good to you, or you can trust the people at Blue Apron to do that for you, because what they actually can do is they go and they pick out the recipes for you instead. I mean, you can lay down parameters. Like if you're a vegetarian, they have a number of vegetarian options available. You can look through those, or you can just tell them, hey, I'm a vegetarian, send me something cool. You can put things that you don't like, but then they'll go out and pick out uh, some good stuff for you. And they don't repeat any of the recipes uh, throughout a whole year. So if you leave it up to them, you don't have to worry. They've uh, they got you covered, but you won't be eating the same thing week after week after week. Can I tell you that just last night I made spicy catfish with a red cabbage apple and pecan slaw? Just last night. Why are you bringing that up now? Oh, because it was a Blue Apron thing. Because it was a Blue Apron thing. Oh, it, was, okay. it, it, it spoke to me. It spoke to me. It was a delicious thing. And one of the best things about it, each of these meals can be delivered directly to you for about $10 per person per meal. 
Blue Apron will let you try them out for free. That's three free meals, including free shipping, when you tell Blue Apron that you heard about them from us. So here's what you do. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission log. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Start right now at blueapron.com slash mission log. Blue Apron, a better way to cook, and a huge thanks to Blue Apron for sponsoring this week's show. It's always nice to have them around, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You know what else is nice? Is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> One might wonder. Uh, <laughs> hearing from people is what I was going to say. Hearing from people. Uh, people like you. Yes, you, person listening. Let me tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at rottenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Because, yes, that's right, there are more episodes upcoming. But first, there's trivia. All right, Ken, today's story, The Chase, was written by Ronald D. Moore and Joe Minoski. Now, the last time we talked about Joe was with Time's Arrow Part 2, and Ronald D. Moore, of course, wrote Tapestry. Uh, so they did the story for this one. Joe Minoski is given the script credit. And, yes, it was inspired, in part, by Carl Sagan's Contact, though it takes a different direction now, the original scripting for this would have been comedic. So, yes, uh, the chase would have been more like it's a mad, 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 mad world. Uh, a slightly different take on this episode. They did not go that direction. Now, it was directed. Yes, it was directed by Jonathan Frakes. And the most recent episode of his that we talked about was Quality of Life. And then he's got two more to go in Next Gen as uh, as a director. And it was a deleted scene. Um, it's kind of a shame that we were denied another on-screen appearance by Mott the Barber. But there is a short scene in sickbay where Dr. Crusher is taking a sample of his skin cells. She makes a crack about getting a manicure from him last week that was painful. It's a comedic bit. It actually doesn't work that well. So it's probably for the best that it didn't make it into the final edit. Uh, that would have taken place right after Data mentions to Picard that there are 17 crew members aboard who are non-Federation, Mott being one of them. Now, if you're wondering, Ken, about Deep Space 1 through 8, well, at least from this episode, we know where number 4 is. So, that's cool. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's right there mm -hmm. on the way to that other place, yep. on the way over to that thing. Right there on the map, just right there. On the, there's all the, the little <laughs> boundary boxes, and then there's number 4. There it is. Those are crazy boundaries for space, aren't they? They are, right? Because they, they, have, they have to go up and down as well. I don't know. I don't know how you do it. It's very two-dimensional thinking. It is, and yeah, that'll get you in trouble. Now, let's talk about guest stars. Sally Jens plays the mysterious ancient alien that we will meet. She's from Wisconsin, not the alien, uh, Salome Jens, and uh, started acting professionally in the 1950s. Uh, she's got some genre credits, and I love that she was in the 1958 classic, Terror from the Year 5000. Fast forward a bit, and you'll see her in The Outer Limits, I Spy, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. So many appearances on so many great shows, but we will be talking about her again. She'll be back for many episodes of Deep Space Nine. 
Now, Linda Thorson as Gull Oset. Very important to remember that on the TV show The Avengers, you first had Honor Blackman, then Diana Rigg, and then Linda Thorson as Mr. Steed's partner. But that's really just a drop in the bucket for her expansive career. She had recurring roles on One Life to Live, uh, Marblehead Manor, and more guest appearances on The Equalizer, St. Elsewhere, and What's That? A little show called Moonlighting. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Maurice Rose, uh, the Romulan captain, Maurice is Scottish-born and appeared in many UK TV shows and movies, yes, including Doctor Who, before Crossing the Pond, where he starts to show up more and more on American TV in the 80s. Guest appearances on shows like Magnum P.I., Remington Seal, and Murder, She Wrote. Now, he's still working constantly, mostly still in British productions, and this is his only Star Trek appearance. We also have John Cothran Jr. as the Klingon Captain Nudach. Jonathan is another one of those constantly working character actors. He was born in St. Louis. He's Jeff Award nominated. Shout out Chicago. And he has made loads of guest appearances. ER, Seinfeld, NYPD Blue, etc. He was a recurring character on a show I loved, HBO's Eastbound and Down. And his Trek roots run deep. Uh, We see him here first, but he'll be back for Deep Space Nine and Enterprise. He even appeared in the video games Star Trek Klingon and Star Trek Borg. You know, the one that I still can't figure out. And finally, Norman Lloyd. Where do we even begin with a legend like Norman Lloyd? He was best friends with Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, He appeared in not only Hitch's movies, but also working as a director for the Masters TV series. Not enough for you? Okay, he was in Charlie Chaplin's Limelight. How about the fact that he was Dr. Auschlander on St. Elsewhere? Oh, and he's still working with projects slated to come out in 2018. Yeah, so we're saying that we're recording this show in 2017 because it's worth noting that Norman Lloyd was born in 1914 and is still going strong. Is that true? It is. is, I, I would not lie in trivia. Yeah. Wow. He, uh, you left out um, The Age of Innocence, by the way, which is my favorite. Oh, well. One of my favorite movies of all time. Just leave it out, though. I only mention it like every other episode. Just yeah. leave that out. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I'll leave that one out. It's, it's totally cool. Yeah. I know. It's because I bashed trivia last week. Mm-hmm. I know how it is. <laughs> On your mark. Get set. Archaeology. Prologue. The Enterprise is studying an area of space that's seeing the birth of a number of stars. Riker calls for the captain to join him in the observation lounge, which is fine. Data, Troy, and Lieutenant Junior J have things under control on the bridge. In a darkened observation lounge, there's something on the table. There's also Commander Riker and an old guy, Professor Galen. He was Picard's archaeology teacher back at Starfleet Academy. The thing on the table is a Curlin Nascus, third dynasty, over 12,000 years old. And it's complete. Open up the little guy and there are a bunch of more little guys inside. The Curlin civilization believed that an individual was a community of individuals. Inside us are many voices, each with its own desire, its own style, its, its own view of the world. You almost never find one of these with all the pieces. Too bad it's out of the box. Galen blows Picard away by saying the Nascus is Picard's. A gift. And totally not a bribe even though he wants Picard to leave the Enterprise and join him on a history-breaking expedition of a lifetime. Act 1. Galen's been really quiet for the past decade, not from Picard, from everybody. Canceling engagements, not publishing as much as he used to. What's going on? 
Galen says he's studying fossils on the microscopic level these days. He's on the trail of something so monumental, he felt it best to keep quiet until he can prove his theory. Picard asked for more information, but Galen says the only way he'll get that is by joining him on the final leg of his expedition. Could be three months, could be a year. They won't have a ship like the Enterprise, so it'll take as long as it takes to get transport from here to there to who knows where. Picard's not so sure. He has responsibilities. Yes, says Galen, to science. The captain says he'll sleep on it. The next morning, Dr. Crusher joins Picard for coffee. He won't be going with Galen, though he's not looking forward to telling him no. Picard could have been an archaeologist. He's not sorry he chose space exploration instead, but the many voices inside the one that is Picard do wonder about the road not taken, even if they don't regret not taking it. And besides, it's Galen. Galen was like the father who understood Picard, just as Picard was like the son who understood Galen. Weird, right? Picard with a caring, understanding father figure? Ah, don't worry, you know your captain. When he gives Galen the bad news, Galen is just as mean and hurtful as Picard's own dad. Giving Picard a curt goodbye, Galen leaves the Enterprise a couple of days early. With the study of the baby stars complete, the Enterprise is on its way to, oh, who cares where, some conference, but that doesn't matter. There's a distress call from Professor Galen. His ship is being boarded by Uridians, a class of information dealers. They can't beam him out, though sensors show Galen's life signs are weakening. Worf blows up the Uridian ship, though he's as confused by that as everybody else. The blast he delivered should not have been enough to destroy the Uridians. With their ship out of the picture, though, they beam Galen to Sigbay aboard the Enterprise, where it's too late. With his dying breath, Galen tells Picard that he was too harsh. Then, he's gone. Act 2. Picard is now bent on completing Professor Galen's mission. Really too bad Galen refused to tell Picard what that mission was. Here's what they do know. The Iridians were trying to download files from Galen's computer. The Enterprise has reconstructed Galen's files and found 19 blocks of numbers. They could mean anything. Doesn't seem to be a code. As for what the Iridians wanted with them, Picard figures they were trying to get the number blocks for someone else. He puts off the conference again. They'll retrace Galen's steps and head to Rua 4. Rua 4. Class M, teeming with life, even a species of proto-hominids. But no earlier civilizations. What was the preeminent Starfleet archaeologist doing there? The next step will be figuring out why Galen was going to Indri 8, the next plan stop, and what the connection is between those two planets. Riker points out that they're late for the conference again, and Picard does not care. He heads to his ready room, followed a time later by Counselor Troy. Picard's a bit torn up, having told Galen no. Troy gets that, but seriously, this conference is a big deal. The Federation needs Picard there, and again, Picard does not care. He will not let Galen's death be in vain. They'll continue on his mission, ignoring the one assigned to them. When they arrive, Indri 8 looks pretty. For about ten seconds, as the Enterprise gets there, something is destroying all life on that planet. Act 3 Riker wonders aloud why anyone would want to destroy all the life on an uninhabited planet. All the life. Picard wonders whether the number blocks on Galen's ship might relate to something biological. And they do. 
They're mathematical equivalents of DNA fragments from 19 different planets across the galaxy. And yet Dr. Crusher spots a commonality. They fit together in a certain way, something Picard says should not be possible. Put together, Beverly has no idea what they make, though Geordi does. He says they're part of a computer program written at the molecular level. According to Dr. Crusher, this program would have to have been written over 4 billion years ago. There's no way to know what the program does until they can run it, and they're missing a few strands for a complete application. Dr. Crusher sees about collecting DNA samples from the Enterprise crew members outside the Federation. Geordi has one more thought. They're not the only people looking for the missing strands. One of those must have been on Indri 8. Someone wiped out all life there to keep the Enterprise from finding a piece of the puzzle. The Enterprise crew members were a bust, no appropriately matching DNA samples there. About to give up for the night, Picard remembers Galen saying he picked up the Curlin Nascos while he was in the neighborhood of the planet Curl. He must have been there collecting DNA samples. Lauren 3 is in that neighborhood, though there was no sample from there in Galen's shuttle. Assuming it was taken by the Iridians, the Enterprise heads that way. Aware that others are on the hunt, the Enterprise shows up to Lauren 3 at red alert, and good thing too. Awaiting them are two Cardassian ships. It's all you leave. No, you leave! When a third faction... A Klingon vessel decloaks and joins the conversation. Act 4. Picard has invited the captains of the Cardassian and Klingon ships over to the Enterprise to talk about their various expeditions. The Cardassian lies, the Klingon lies. Finally, Picard's like, we're all looking to complete Professor Galen's work. We're all trying to complete the computer program comprised of DNA fragments. And none of us have all the pieces the others have, so... Let's share and work together. Huh? Huh? The Klingon thinks the code is for an ultimate weapon. An ultimate weapon! The Cardassian thinks it's for an unlimited power source. Picard thinks it's a mystery. In the end, each reason is good enough for each participant. They're in. They'll share their samples, combine them on the Enterprise, and see what happens. What happens is... Eh, nothing. There's still one piece short but Picard figures the designers would have wanted them to find all of the pieces. With all but one, pattern analysis should be enough to help them locate the last piece. It'll take a few hours, though. The Klingon passes the time, first by trying to beat up Data, then by trying to bribe Data into letting the Klingons know the results of the pattern analysis early. Geordi, meanwhile, spots some trouble in engineering. So, everybody has something to do while they pass the time. And now, drumroll, please... The results of the extrapolation are in. Dr. Crusher says the last fragment is in the Ramazad system. Armed with that information, the Cardassian beams out, and the Cardassian warships start firing on the Enterprise and the Klingon ship. Act 5. Remember the problem Geordi found in engineering? It was an attempt by the Cardassians to tamper with the Enterprise defenses. Still, the Enterprise let itself look damaged, so the Cardassians would take off for the Ramazad system which is not actually where the last DNA fragment is. Unfortunately, the Klingon ship was damaged. It'll be fine, but it can't complete the chase with the Enterprise, so the Klingon captain will go with Picard. The Enterprise lays in a course for the Vilmoran system. When they arrive, the second planet of the system is the only one that might support life. Picard, Crusher, Worf, and the Klingon captain beam down, joined soon by the Cardassians. It took them no time to figure out what happened. The teams are also joined by Hello, 
a group of Romulans. They've been shadowing the Enterprise since Galen's shuttle was attacked in Act 1. The Klingon, the Romulans, and the Cardassians are all threats and insults. Each is absorbed enough in that to allow Dr. Crusher to grab a sample of DNA and complete the computer code. That code goes about reprogramming Beverly's tricorder into a projector, and an ancient programmer appears to the assembled races. The Ancient Ones explored the stars and found no life like theirs. So they made some, seeded the primordial seas with starters and guides that would grow life in the various worlds in their image. They also left this message, coded in pieces of DNA across the worlds. It was their hope that the surviving beings would come together in fellowship and companionship to hear this message. And if they're hearing it, the Ancient assumes that they must have done so. There is something in us in each of you, and so, something of you in each other. With a request that they be remembered, the message from the Ancient One ends. The Klingon can't believe that the end of the chase was so useless. The Cardassian is also disbelieving. That a Cardassian and a Klingon could share any traits? Ooh. Everyone beams back to their respective ships. Though the Enterprise receives a message from the Romulan commander. So, we're not so different. Perhaps then, one day, Picard agrees. One day. And with that, the chase reaches the end. You know, we've mentioned it before under different circumstances, but I love that so many people in the 24th century still have a flair for drama the, the, there's mood lighting and then the mysterious artifact and the returning professor from long ago. It's all so perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that is pretty cool. And he brings a present, mm-hmm. which is kind of awesome. I got one of those, by the way. Menton yeah. box. Yeah. Ooh. And and Ooh. each of the little things inside still have their original plastic capes. So Great. I'm going to hold on to it for like five more years, and then I think it's eBay all the way. Oh, yeah. If you need to pay your way to Vegas, boom. <laughs> you, you, just, you, you got a handle. Yeah. Here's a weird question. Mm. How do we feel about Gull Oset's makeup? Uh, we hate it. Okay. And okay. I can't even tell you why exactly. It's just the whole time I was watching her, I was like, something's not right. Yeah, it's not right. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that really all we got? Seriously? No. I thought you were going to hit me with some kind of trivia something. Like, yeah, it turns out this was done by a sixth grader. I mean, <laughs> no, it's not no, that bad. Don't no, misunderstand. No, but no. I thought you were going to like... I thought you were going to hit me with some kind of like, well, here's why that is. No, no, there, there's no why. It's just kind of, it's just kind of bothersome. And I, and I think the thing is, so we know what Cardassians look like. This is the first and I believe the only time that we see a female Cardassian named Gull, who has that title, who has that, that honorary, right? Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you'd think right. there'd be more. But it's kind of like, um, it, it's sort of a, a non-creative way to denote that she's female. You fall back on like these human standards of women's makeup from the 20th century to make this character just a telegraph that she's female. Like, it's really strange. It's really strange. See, to me, that wasn't, I mean, what I didn't notice anything particularly female about her makeup. It's just something about her makeup seemed off. Now, maybe it's the, like the big blue dot in the middle of her forehead instead of the sort of the darker thing that they have on the uh, on the male Cardassians, I think. Well, they, they gave her these giant eyelashes and the, the more pronounced lips. And it, it just it doesn't seem right. 
yeah, something is off on the makeup. I don't know if they like chose to do that because, well, this is a woman Cardassian, and so woman Cardassians look this way, or if it was just a bad makeup week. Something about it was something about it was a little off, though. I agree yeah, with you on that. Yeah. Um, so I had a question about this episode, and I'm actually reminded of the very first episode of Mission Log that people would have heard, and mm-hmm. the very first episode of Star Trek ever to air. Mm-hmm. I'm of course referring to the Man Trap. Mm-hmm. Um, we commented when that show, you know, when we covered that show, mm-hmm. gee, it's like 28 years ago now. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Feels like sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, the way Starfleet knew that something was wrong with the uh, with the creators, mm-hmm. uh, Nancy and uh, and her husband, doctor, um, <laughs> the way that we knew that something was wrong with the creators uh, was because they had stopped sending back their archaeological finds to the Federation. Oh, right. Yeah. And you and I wondered then, sh- should they really be doing that? Should they really be pulling this stuff off the planet and sending it off someplace else? Should they not leave it, you know, where they found it? Be sort of low-impact archaeologists, if you will. And yet, here we are, like, tw- 30 years later, I guess, from that episode to when this episode was made and put out, or 30-something years, maybe. Should Galen really be taking 12,000-year-old artifacts from a long-dead civilization and giving them away as bribes or gifts, whichever? Yeah. I mean, should you just be picking up, like, you know, this thing's like, oh, wow, you almost never find these. I know. I found it where it was, too, and I didn't leave it there. <laughs> no, it's yours. It goes now. Put it next to Livingston. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's move it to the ship where, you know, it's under attack <laughs> nearly every week. Where, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, they'll be as safe as Moriarty, won't they? All I'm going to say is hold that thought, Ken. Hold that thought okay. uh, for uh, maybe a few months longer. And, and, and let's see. Let's see what happens to that priceless artifact, okay? Okay. Might, might make a return. You never know. Um, I was really happy to learn in this episode that uh, the Cardassians have biscuits. <laughs> yeah. Even happier to find out that the Klingons have a recipe um, hopefully they'll share. Yeah. Yeah. Do they have a recipe for gravy though? Oh, and if so, gravy of what? <laughs> oh, that's kind of, yeah. Yeah. No. That's kind of, that's kind of a sticking point there because yeah. you know, it's not all the same. Believe me. So uh, here's what I'm trying to picture. There's a scene in this episode where it's sort of a, a, a you know, simple little comment that says, uh, Oh, the Klingons know about your strength talking to data. And I'm trying to picture a bunch of Klingons sitting around the fire and they've got their blood wine and they're, they're maybe chewing on some targ and, uh, and they're telling tales of honor and battle and they're all having a good laugh about it. And then one of them chimes in and says, uh, yeah, but you know, who's really strong, uh, that robot on the enterprise, that guy, <laughs> that guy's really strong. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, I have to remember that Klingons aren't real, so I'm not going to really worry about him, uh, like, you know, insulting anybody too much, mm-hmm. but he's like totally bested in strength and the Klingons like, and I hear your brain's just as good as your, you know, strength. Yeah. And I really just wanted data to go like, you'd be able to tell. <laughs> right. Yeah. <that'd> be, <laughs> so that would be the appropriate answer. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. Beguile me, Klingon. Please yeah. tell me. Yeah, trick me somehow. Yeah. Please. Yes. Well, I, the whole scene. What did you call it when Kirk would do it? Word jujitsu? Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. I would, a, a I would, word jujitsu. I would love yeah. to see the Klingon try that on data. That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the whole scene in Ten Forward is great. It, it's funny. Yeah. But it's made all the better because of Brent downplaying everything. And then John Cothran playing his delight, which I, I love. He, he's shocked at first. He's a little worked up. He's playing his delight in the moment, which is kind of great. Yeah. It's so good. I, I do love the excitement on a Klingon's face when somebody, like if they're just like, you know, drinking 
mm-hmm. and somebody says something insulting or mm-hmm. does something insulting, but you're theoretically on the same side. I love how happy the Klingons get about that. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. a jerk. You're a jerk. What? <laughs> <laughs> you're right. I am. Let's talk exactly. about something else. Um, so Picard has a good idea in this episode. Okay. They they need seven. They need more strands of DNA than they have, mm-hmm. and and Picard, you know, sort of does the Occam's razor thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when looking for something, start right where you are. Mm-hmm. Go with the simplest solution, right? Don't figure out well where are all the far places it can be. Yeah. Now, what's the nearest place it could be? Yeah. Have you tried the barber shop, for example? There are seventeen people on the Enterprise from outside the Federation. Doctor Crusher says, "I'll start collecting data, or I'll start collecting DNA." Excuse me. <laughs> Now, this taught me two things, or made me wonder two things. First of all, you can go to Starfleet and become a Starfleet officer without being from the Federation. Yep. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. That's a neat thing. I like that. And is she going to ask for the DNA samples, or is she just going to collect them? Because that's either cool or uncool. It depends on what the answer to that question is. She didn't say, like, I'm going to go ask people for DNA. She's like, oh. I'll do that. Now, if you're serving on board the Enterprise, I would think you probably in the 24th century would have to have given a DNA sample anyway. Mm, yeah, yeah, probably so. Because that just seems like that seems like the way we're going. I would imagine at some point to work at a 7-Eleven, you're going to have to submit a DNA sample. Right. So I think probably in the 24th century, like when you beam aboard, come to think of it, the pattern buffer should have been like, nope, got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and then you never even had to worry, right? But... When she when she's apparently going to go swab everybody for DNA, mm-hmm. I was a little uncomfortable with like her saying, "Oh, I'm just going to go get it." Right, right. Well, <laughs> as opposed to her saying, "I'm going to go see if I can maybe get that from the people who are willing to." Well, she is the doctor. People, you know, believe somebody in a lab coat, and it is, as you say, a quasi military organization. So, mm-hmm. yeah, just kind of shows up and says, "I'll be taking this." I guess you like right. them. Now, it is an interesting idea here to leave this breadcrumb trail in DNA over the course of four billion years, but it isn't one of the ways that DNA works through mutation. So, I, you know, four billion years is a long time. I, I'm just I, I, I assume I can't really, you know, I haven't been around that long, but I'm just going to say it's a long time. And uh You've got, uh, so the Earth is a little over 4 billion years old, but then you don't have life really showing up until, you know, nearly a couple of billion years after that. And, and you got to go through amoeba and trilobites and dinosaurs. And uh, I learned at the La Brea Tar Pits, uh, giant sloths. Uh, so that's, they're my, that's a, they're my favorite. They're awesome. They're really cool. They're my cool. favorite prehistoric animal. Yeah. They're really cool. So it's only in the last couple hundred thousand years that you get humanoids, you know, humans to appear. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, and then in all that time, you have to account for things like uh, meteors wiping out life and, you know, stuff like that. So it's interesting that the, the humanoid alien says, um, hey, we wanted to spread this genetic material throughout the galaxy so there would be more humanoids around. And like, well, you... You sure picked the long route to uh, to get there, you know. Why not just colonize? Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. No. Glad, no. glad we ended up humanoid, because um, otherwise it could have been a bunch of uh, T-Rexes in a spaceship coming back to find you. It seems like in this episode, the Cardassians and the Klingons are way ahead of the Federation in all of this anyway. Hmm. So, it, it, so there's something that no one else has heard of except an old professor. And yet, as soon as we dispatch with him, here are warships and like whole crews that are already on the right path. Well, 
But that could just be because of the Iridians, right? I mean, he's look, he's like hopping the galaxy, just getting transport any way he can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So somebody somewhere along the way, I mean, unless he's like, you know, carrying his pad with him everywhere he goes, he may have, I don't know, gone to the community washroom at some point and accidentally left his pad in a in a in a cafeteria. He's been too many places for this to be a complete secret. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of weird to think that the Klingons would have picked up on it. I mean them no offense, <laughs> even though, again, they're fictitious. Yeah, so what yeah. do I care? Mm-hmm. I mean the Klingons all the offense there. How's yeah. that? Um, it's it, it's surprising that everybody would have picked up on it, but he seriously has been all over the galaxy. He's been to, what, 17, 16 of the 19 planets he yeah, needs to go to? He, he gets around, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, he's, he's, he's leaving a breadcrumb. Uh, trail. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Whether he means to or not. Yeah. And I get, you know, I do like the fact that we have a callback to the Iridians who we only just met. And what do they do? They trade information. So that's very, is a nice little thing to tie that in. Um, I do have to say the, the humanoid alien at the end, her English is great for a dialect that's 4 billion years old. Oh, I assume that was Universal Translators working. That's pretty universal. That That is the most That's universal very, translator you can get. <laughs> yeah. Well, they may have built that, too. Oh, yeah. Good point. Good point. <laughs> Encoded that in our DNA. Yeah. How to hear. I'll tell you the thing that I'm looking most forward to in this episode, though. And it's sort of like the, the epilogue. It would be the very, very end, like after the part that we saw. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, after he gets off the phone with the uh, Romulans and then Riker comes in and says, so down on the planet, huh? That's, that was really cool. What happened exactly? And Picard says, I, I don't like to talk about it. It's, it's really personal and I don't like to talk about it because once again, a race that wants to be remembered. Yeah. Appears to Picard. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing she says is remember us. And I just see Picard going, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to talk about this for quite a while. There is a fractal quality to the Kerlinescos. Open one, and there are many. One assumes, metaphorically speaking, that each of those many is filled with many as well. And each of those many is also filled with many. And it stands to reason that each of those many has a cheesy, melty center, kind of like a hot pocket. Deep, dark, deep, dark, truthful discussion about today's episode in just a moment. But first, a word about the official Star Trek graphic novels collection from our friends at Eagle Moss. For the first time ever, the best of 50 years of Star Trek comics have been brought together in this extraordinary new collection, uh, spanning decades and decades and decades and so on. It features everything from the first Star Trek comic to uh, adventures that are coming out right now. At least five decades, Ken. At least, least, maybe (laughs) (laughs) 5.1. So this collection, as we have mentioned, is beautifully presented in brand new hardbound editions with specially commissioned introductions. And you get stories from some of the most beloved writers in Star Trek history. And very often what you get are the stories in between the stories. So what happened to the Enterprise crew between the original series and, say, the movies? 
So here's where you can find out how that was covered in comics and graphic novels. And here's what's cool. The longer you subscribe, you get a bunch of bonus stuff, too. Things like bookends, things like a 10 full of Star Trek posters. It, it's it, just an amazing collection of bonus materials to go along with your graphic novels. This is also good for people who uh, both want to remember stories and get to know new ones. I mean, you've got things here like um, novelizations of some of the movies. Uh, then there are a whole bunch of stories that you just don't know unless you've been reading the comics as you go. And then you've got, uh, you know, well, one weird variation anyway. I know we've talked about it a million times, but it is still interesting. Uh, the city on the edge of forever thing. I mean, what I like about it is like it's the grouping. It's like stories you know, stories you don't know. And stories you think you know, but then there's a um, then there's a bit of a twist. And I like that you get sort of the behind-the-scenes look. You get the liner notes. You get all the additional information to fill in about the making of those stories. And all the publishers are represented. You have Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Paramount Comics, Wildstorm, Tokyo Pop, and IDW. And one of my favorites, we've mentioned it before, those 1970s British Star Trek comic strips. They're all here. They're all represented. So what you do is start your collection today with Volume 1, Countdown. You get that for only $4.95, and that comes with free shipping. Uh, this is the story before the J.J. Abrams 2009 Star Trek movie reboot sequel extravaganza. It uh, lets you on the circumstances that drove Nero and Spock to travel back to the 23rd century, and in so doing, uh, kicking off the Kelvin universe. Bonus content includes the first Gold Key Star Trek comic book from 1967. Other editions ship twice monthly and are delivered directly to your door. And, of course, you may cancel your subscription at any time. But then you'll be missing out on Star Trek. For details on the entire collection, including all those exclusive free gifts that we mentioned and to order, visit eaglemoss.com slash mission log that address again is eaglemoss.com slash mission log and a huge thanks to eagle moss for sponsoring this week's show so i want to talk a little bit about picard if we can he's uh central to this story i think it's a good idea he is mm -hmm. he's like right at the middle of this story right in, in a lot it. of ways yeah people often talk about families of birth versus families of uh choice mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. They're, I mean, they're the people you grew up with, and they're the people you choose to spend your life with, be that your significant other or your best friends or whatever. What do you make of Picard choosing a foster father that in tough times is just as abusive as his real father? You know what? We've actually seen it before, too. Look at Boothby. Boothby is not exactly the warm and fuzzy type, is he now? No, he's not. Yeah. He's, he's a stern kind of... Yeah. He's not. Wow. But he's not mean. But yeah, I mean, no. Picard is not looking for somebody who's going to say, attaboy. <laughs> right. Right. At all, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That That's interesting. I mean, uh, this disciplinarian streak that runs through Picard. Guess we know where it comes from. Um, well, we do know man. where it comes from, but why does he keep going back to it? Now, I mean, that's not so. I mean, I guess that's not terribly surprising because. I mean, there are people who say that the <laughs> that the people we associate with, uh, we do that a lot of times because we're really just trying to fix something that was broken years before. I've heard that before. Yeah. So, right. and I'm not, I'm not, certainly I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a big self-help person either. I mean, I've, I've, you know, delved a tiny bit, but I'm not the person who's, uh, well, no Tony Robbins. I'll put it that way. No, I know how it is to get other people <laughs> to do your help for you. I get it. It's just, I mean, so maybe that's what Picard's doing. Maybe we're not even supposed to notice that. I don't know. But it just struck me as odd that, you know, Picard is all kinds of warm and fuzzy 
when Galen shows up. Yeah. And then the second he has anything to say to Galen that Galen does not want to hear, Galen's like, yeah, you know what you are? A giant bowl of suck you're just you're the worst oh my and like as a you're not even like a, a what is an archaeologist you're not even one of those you're like a dilettante as far as that's Ooh, concerned why yeah. don't you go why don't you go and study stuff that's happening rather than stuff that's already happened you 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 loser mm-hmm. man <laughs> it's like wow yeah he's like the dad who understood me <clears throat> i have to say that picard handles it really well you mean looking down at the floor and being sheepish? Uh, no, I mean, it, look, the, the, the bit where uh, Professor Galen says, like, look, you're out here like a, like a Roman centurion, just sort of, you know, looking at the kingdom. And, and it, Picard, you know, that's not true. And he's, I, I, think, I think Picard kind of stands his ground. I think he, he maintains composure when maybe I would just be weeping on the ground saying, please don't yell at me, Professor, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Uh, think about the line that he responded with, though. He didn't say that's not true. He said, you don't believe that. Mm-hmm. He, he's still looking for acceptance. He's still looking for acceptance from a father who is never going to give him acceptance. And I'm not saying that because that's happened with Galen. I'm saying that because that's happened with Galen. That's happened with his own father. And yeah, I guess to an extent it happened with Boothby. But, well, I mean, come to think of it. Hmm. 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 Remember when Crusher told Picard that Boothby didn't remember him? Yeah. Until he showed him a picture? That's a lie. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe yeah. Boothby really didn't remember him, or maybe Boothby is a is just the harsh <laughs> father figure that Picard is looking for in every bit of his life. Hmm. Bo- Boothby just, he gets off on playing head games with everybody around him. That's And, yeah. and Picard gets off on taking it. Ugh. Oh, this is such a mess now. It's a tiny bit of a mess. Totally different episode now. <laughs> just well, yeah. luckily it ends in Act One, so it's well. Except, of course, he's driven by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's driven by that desire for acceptance that he never got all the way through Act Five. Hmm. Yep. No. Yeah. Oh, Good times. Picard. Good times. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I don't know if you noticed uh, that there may be a part of this that sounds oddly like the Preservers. From the Paradise Syndrome. I don't. I don't know what that is. I mean, okay, I'm so it was an episode of Star Trek. Yeah. That. So, uh, thirty-two years ago, when you and I were recording our episodes about the original series, mm, yes. we, we talked about the Paradise Syndrome, uh, and uh, he is Kirok. Kirk is Kirok. Um. Native Americans. A bit more. Oh, right. okay. Yeah. There you go. Right, right, right. Native yes. American planet. Not to be confused with Nazi planet. Not to be confused with Miri planet. <laughs> not to be confused with Roman planet. This was Native American planet. And they had been placed there. These Native Americans had been placed there by the preservers. So Ronald D. Moore was well aware of that. He kind of thought about making it more specific. Ultimately, they decided to leave that out of the story and just kind of leave it up to interpretation. But I thought it was kind of uh, kind of a neat idea that he would have tied that back to TOS. Eh, wow. That's such a... Well, forgive me. Obviously, for me, it's a forgettable episode. But let's be honest. 66% of them are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm the worst about that. I understand. But yeah, I, I totally forgot no, about 79 episodes, about 30 good ones. That, that's the joke. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. and easily 15 of those stick in my head. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Um, it's it's maybe a little on the nose, but I have to say I really, really like it. Mm-hmm. The Curlin civilization believed that an individual was a community of individuals. Inside us are many voices, each with its own desire, its own style, its its own view of the world. Yeah. I like that. I, I almost have nothing else about that. But, I mean, that's that's so many different things. I mean, that is true of, I mean, what did Picard say to Crusher later? That, you know, the many voices inside him do have a certain yearning for the past in a way. Sure. I mean, they do wonder about the road not taken, and so that can apply to each individual. But then I also can't help think of, you know, it takes a village to raise a child kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are not only everything that's happened to us before and everything that we do, but all the people that have come before us as well. Not each individual person, obviously, but everybody who... I mean, I'm sure that there are things that I say that started with my great-grandfather. Oh, yeah. And I don't know what those things are, but I know that I picked up some phrases from my mom... And she picked them up from her mom, and she picked them up from her parents. And, you know, there we go. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's an interesting idea to think, um, to think that, this, uh, that this artifact, that this culture, it's many individuals that make up one individual. My assumption is that's not just about the many voices in your own head, but the many voices that have spoken before you. Yeah. Uh, f- at least 14 out of the 15 voices in my head agree with you. That uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. I really like that. Hey, uh, there's a moment where Picard tells Deanna that this isn't him taking the Enterprise in some wild goose chase to purge myself of guilt and remorse. Is he being entirely honest? I mean, he he is saying this to Deanna, who's the empath, and she knows when people are lying or telling the truth, and she should know that about the captain. But is it okay if the mission serves maybe both that purpose and the scientific one? I mean, maybe maybe it's a sort of... uh, Lucky for him that this has fallen in his lap. You might have honestly just hit on a flaw with the episode that I sort of tried to keep out of my head. Okay, which is? Why didn't Galen just say, hey, can can we just take the Enterprise like three places over the course of two days? See? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's yeah. not so bad. Yeah. It's not a, yeah, because Galen's like, oh, if I had diplomatic whatever and if I had a ship like the Enterprise, I could do this. That's honestly what I thought he was going to be hinting at. Mm-hmm, but he's mm-hmm. very much stuck in his whole, yeah, nope, I'm out here on my own. So you come with me because I'm not that young anymore and, and I don't want my mission to fail because I'm out there by myself. Maybe if he hadn't spent so much time trying to guilt trip him. Yeah, right. <laughs> and right. instead just said, listen, you're like captain of this thing, right? Tell you what. Why don't we go do this and go do this and go do this? Because that's what uh, Picard ends up doing anyway. Yeah. Yeah. As far as is he being honest? No, I don't think so. But he, I mean, he also says, look, whatever about the conference. (laughs) He basically says, whatever about the conference. This is an important thing. I don't want this guy to have died in vain. And I will take full responsibility. And pretty much once he says, I will take full responsibility, then everybody can be like, all right, cool. Set course for fun. Whatever you want to (laughs) do. Feet up on the console. We're going wherever the captain says. Don't worry about our other orders because, you know, the buck stops there. Yeah, pretty much. Now, uh, I did see some feedback from a listener on Twitter who definitely was not happy with the whole cheesy, bad science, ancient aliens feel of the episode. And and I agree. I've talked about that Mm -hmm. before in other episodes that kind of touch on that because I I want Star Trek to be better than that. Um, Now, it's an interesting angle, though, to use DNA as a common bond. Um, The the idea that, well, sure, there are all these humanoids in kind of our known part of the galaxy. Why are they all humanoid? Why, you know, why can a Vulcan mate with a human and then make a Spock? If you want to make a Spock, you can. Um, 
Now, I did have to wonder, at any point in the 23rd or 24th century, didn't any scientist from anywhere, maybe from these multiple cultures that we've met, start taking DNA samples and start noticing any similarities? All right. Maybe, maybe wonder about that. I will see your question and your listener feedback and raise you another okay. uh, piece of listener feedback. Okay, go ahead. We got an email from somebody, and I'm sorry, I do not remember the name of the person who sent it, because I wasn't planning on talking about it, because, you know me an email Mm -hmm. but we got some uh, letter from somebody who said that they really felt like that star trek had actually that this episode had actually gone back to the star trekiness of star trek especially after the last two episodes where we had uh, starship mine which is die hard in space and lessons which is a love story in space Mm -hmm. and now we're coming back to sort of a bigger message Yep. And yeah, you're right about the bad science if we're doing a science fiction show. But in a way, it feels like we're not doing a science fiction show this week. We're doing a, a, a human condition show. Um, so I have to go back to the thing that we've talked about before, about how there is no Riker and there are no Klingons, as I mentioned earlier in this episode. There's no Federation. There's no Enterprise. I mean, we're all here on this planet, and that's the message that's being delivered. It's about people here on this planet. The ancients are a symbol for whatever brought about life on this one planet that we all share. Maybe that's happenstance. Maybe it's a deity. Maybe it's, you know, the marriage of humans and Cylons. It's kind of tough to mm. say. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it's those big, scary aliens from Prometheus. I mean, this is all about us, right? People here. Now, maybe the Federation is the West and the Romulans, I assume, are still the Russians in this episode, though this episode was shot in the, like, 20 or 25 minutes when we thought the Russians would be our friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Sorry. Not that you can't have individual Russian friends, whatever. Man, sure. I hope yeah. 10 years from now people are like, what's he talking? Oh, this must have been recorded then. Yeah, that was an ugly week. Klingons and the Kandrasians, I don't know what they are. They're definitely not as enlightened. So I don't really want to say that, you know, each one of these is like, oh, this is this country. This is this country. These are these people. These are these people. But, I mean, you've got something where you've got basically us and the Romulans are standing on either side of this thing. And I don't know what the Klingons and the Kardashians are. I guess the question that I would ask you, though, and and the listener who said I don't like sort of the fake science, Mm -hmm. how would you go about telling a story about all life on Earth and encompass all life in the galaxy without doing the Prometheus thing, right? Because you can't – I mean, that was always the thing like with um, a private little war, Yeah, right? The Federation sails in. Everything sucks on that planet. The Federation does what little bit it can, or Starfleet does what little bit it can, and then they sail away from that planet. We are telling a story here that involves all life, or if not all life, most life that we know, all life in the Federation, which I'm assuming we can say is life on the planet, right? The Earth is Federation. The Federation is the Earth, maybe. Maybe there are aliens, but we're not really concerned with them at this point. So I guess the question I have is, if you're not going to do the ancient aliens thing, how else would you... um, how else would you encompass all life? Yeah, well, I mean, that'll have to be in my big book of uh, John Champion rewrites the episodes of Star Trek, which we've done, <laughs> done many times in the past. Um, yeah. You know, but we'll... Because we'll... I got an idea that would actually be funny for a comic. Yeah, you know, okay. There are some okay. people who say that, like, uh, that like life on Earth could actually be from Mars, like, mm-hmm. you know, from an explosion or from something hitting that and then coming here. Mm-hmm. It can just be like a like a comet just ping-ponging off all the different planets. Oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> Dropping nice. off little bits of life as it goes yeah. and like, you yeah. know, 
then the problem is there's no message to the end to hit you over the head. No, but and, and here's the thing. I mean, uh, it, it this will come back to to kind of our our wrap up because I I, I like what you're describing here. I mean, yes, the, this is Star Trek being a uh, it is a space poem about humanity, and that that's what this episode is doing. So for that, I, I definitely like and respect this episode. But oh oh, but I jumped ahead. Um, and while I'm jumping ahead, um, maybe one takeaway here is that uh, Cardassians are just worse than Romulans. You know, <laughs> there. Well, this does. I mean, this goes back to what I was saying a minute ago. So mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. if the Federation is the West and the Romulans are Russia. Mm-hmm. or the former Soviet Union, then, yeah, I mean, these other... See, the problem that I have with that, though, is then we are saying that there are countries that aren't as important. No, of course, yeah. I mean, I, w- I will say that there are countries that aren't as rich, certainly, and maybe that's how this whole thing is being judged. And maybe, like, you know... Yeah, I mean, because, yes, the Cardassians in this episode are worse than the Romulans. Kind of, although, come to think of it, they never actually explained how it was that Worf's like single stupid shot was able to destroy the Iridian ship. You know what? Okay, so that was was that the Romulans? No, that that was in a script draft. Uh, the, the and it, it, I believe it was not the Romulans. It was actually something going on with the Iridian ship that that just happened. Uh, see, it should have been the Romulans. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Because they're there shadowing them anyway, and they want to see how this whole puzzle thing is going to play out. And the Iridians are now standing in the way of making the puzzle thing play out properly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's kind—it's of, weird that they sort of left that mystery there, right? Like they're like, okay, uh, wing them, Worf, yeah. and then Worf like blows them up, and and they're like, what the heck, Worf? And he's like, yeah, what the heck? <laughs> later, <laughs> right. either they need the Romulans to go, oh, by the way, that was us. I'm sorry, or they need Worf to go later. Man, I can't believe I got away with that. Yeah, yeah, that that, that was something that should have been in there, and it just it, it wasn't, and it's too bad. <laughs> but, um. So uh, there was one nice little moment there uh, where the Klingons and Cardassians, as soon as they come on board the Enterprise, and as we start putting together the pieces of this puzzle, that, that they see it as something that will lead to a weapon. That that's immediately where both their minds go. And and I refer back to an old friend of mine whose name escapes me, who said something like, uh, to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And um, I thought that was uh, a very good insight into those guys. Uh, if you can think of who that was. Let me know. He or she sounds incredibly insightful. Very wise. Disclaimer. If you find a Curlin Nascos, do not open it, and open it, and open it. First of all, you may lose your mind. Also, as good as it sounds, a 12,000-year-old Hot Pocket is not good for anyone. So I know it's been a while, John, but you may remember it was my week to do the recap. Mm-hmm. I thought about filling the recap with jokes from uh, the movie The Chase, which, uh, of course, starred uh, Charlie Sheen, mm-hmm. uh, Christy Swanson, and Henry Rollins. Mm. And then I realized I've never seen The Chase. And then I realized neither has anyone else. Right. So instead of doing that... Good choice. Yeah, thank you. Instead of doing that, I figured I'd just do a, you know, a fairly straight recap of The Chase, uh, which, of course, led to the part where we talked about the deep stuff, uh, which, of course, leads to the part where we now come to the questions about the messages, morals, and meanings of the episode and deciding yeah, for ourselves uh, whether or not this episode holds up. 
And so I'll start with that question, as I want to do. Uh, the chase, John, does this episode of Star Trek The Next Generation hold up as far as you're concerned? Well, I think by most accounts, yes. I mean, um, hey, do you remember uh, the Jihad in uh, the animated series? I remember there was an episode called The Jihad. Okay. So in The Jihad from the animated series, you you had this team put together who who had to go. Remember, they had to go get a thing. Right. That's where we got our green memories. Yeah. Not you and me. No, no. We don't have green memories. No, 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 no. Not not together. Yeah. Anyway. No. no. We we have green memories. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But not together. No. But you had Kirk, and then you had you know, this this ragtag group of people thrown together who had to go complete a mission. And uh, and it was sort of yes. a, a study in coming together and friendship and, and using individual skills to solve a task. And, and, and you got all mm-hmm. of that across in about 22 minutes. And I, I felt like there's something about this episode that didn't quite know where it was going and and i was really invested in the story with uh, professor galen with norman lloyd um because it was this deeply personal thing about picard and then the episode turned into something else and uh, then you had cardassians and romulans and klingons oh my um so there i I felt like it it went off the rails just a little bit just a little bit not so much that it ruined my enjoyment of the episode um but i will say this by the time we got to the end and we found out exactly what the puzzle was there to reveal Mm -hmm. i've already talked about kind of my problem with the whole ancient aliens thing Mm mm-hmm This is one of those stories where I wish that they had left it a little bit more ambiguous rather than just handing us the definitive answer at the end. So instead of them discovering, you had somebody then to show up and tell them exactly what they needed to learn. That bit of it left me a bit cold. Like I said, I I was intrigued by the Picard story. I was intrigued by the conflict that he was feeling at the beginning. Norman Lloyd is just wonderful and every scene with patrick stewart and him is just great i wish there'd been more of them um so by the time the story takes a turn and and it becomes just about the mystery there's some element of that that loses me a little bit And, and then like i said at the end when you're just handed the answer i i kind of wanted something else but again those don't take away from my enjoyment of the episode and i think what's more important here is when we talk about the messages but before we get to that before we get to that how did you feel about this as a production well i mean the problem that i have is i don't think i can actually do the production part without doing the message part as well because when you say you're sorry that they were just handed the message in the end um Mm. what the world needs now Mm. is an alien to come down and say listen (laughs) here's the facts of the matter because we are finding so many reasons to fight with each other all the time it's absolutely crazy yeah so if i try to separate out those parts right i do like the fact that is there actually a b plot in this episode i don't think there is no it's more like a a part one and a part two yeah in a way right yeah One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And I didn't feel like we spent too much time on any one of those parts uh, that it dragged things down. Mm -hmm. And then, honestly, though we were handed the the answer in the end, we still didn't take it. Hmm. 
we did we didn't all join hands at that point and start singing kumbaya at the very end of it these aliens come down and say listen here is the meaning of everything as far as you're concerned and 50 percent of them are like well that sucks and they walk away <laughs> and then the other 50 percent are like well Eh, maybe I wish that wasn't the way exactly. And maybe one day it won't be that way. But right now it is that way. Yeah. The, the fact that they were even all handed the answer in the end, I mean, it doesn't mean they all live happily ever after. It doesn't come close to mean that. Yeah. I mean, they, they all get told everything they theoretically have ever wanted to know, but they're going to keep fighting mm-hmm. because, you know, they've had these ideas for four billion years and mm-hmm. and they're not ready to give those up, even though somebody just gave them the answers. So... I mean, to me, yeah, it worked. Uh, Norman Lloyd turned a little too dark a little too quickly, although if we assume that Picard's going to be attracted to that because he's attracted to a father who's exactly as uncaring and unloving as his father was, <laughs> then, okay, that kind of makes sense. Right. Um, yeah, uh, uh, the female Cardassian, um, her makeup didn't work well. Don't know why. But, yeah. I mean, otherwise, as a production, I think it works great. Get to see a lot of ships. They're not all trying to blow each other up. Um, get to see a few different planets. That planet going dead right before their eyes was actually, uh, you know, pretty well done. Yeah, yeah. I would say, and there were a couple of times, uh, some of Beverly's words were to me, if I'm right, I hate that line. <laughs> I always hate that line. If I'm correct, yeah. and they don't say anything, and they just go ahead and do whatever. I hate that line every time it turns out. If up. there's nothing wrong <laughs> with me. <laughs> no, that's yeah. okay. I okay. love that one. All right. That one's great. That's a great call and response, okay. honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, we should try that the next time we're on stage together. We should. But, um, all right. So then tell me about the messages. Well, I, for part one, I, I was really interested in Picard's journey, his kind of inner conflict. Maybe we've had too much of what makes Picard tick recently, but he has to deal with regret and remorse doubly here. He has the regret of not pursuing a different life and abandoning the professor. And then I like how Deanna phrases that you didn't abandon him. You chose not to abandon a lifelong career. So maybe there's a message in there that you have to accept your decisions to not beat yourself up about mistakes and regrets. So that, that was all good, valuable stuff for Picard. But if we talk about the big message here, well, it's pretty bonk bonk on the head. Um, We are all related. And of course, as I said, this was the, what, the space poem for humanity. Of course, the metaphor is simply there for us on Earth. Uh, but we are all creatures of the universe with far more that binds us than separates us. And that is a very Star Trek message. And this one ends with at least some glimmer of hope in that message. Yeah, like you said, 50% of these people went away saying like, oh, that's terrible. We're going to keep fighting. Mm -hmm. The other 50% of that equation said, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, you know? Yeah. Um, So that is hopeful, and it is a very Roddenberry thing. And um, this is one of those episodes where I, I may not be crazy about everything in the episode, But at the end of the day, the message is so great that I can let a lot of those things in the episode kind of pass. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I don't know. You know me. I mean, I almost like the Omega Glory. 
Mm-hmm. I almost like the Omega Glory. And I don't remember what the Yangs and the Combs finally ended up deciding in the end of the Omega Glory. That's a bad episode with bad production and just like some really <laughs> horrible stereotypes. I mean, it is a bad episode of the original series. Yeah. And if you don't remember which one it is, uh, it's one of the worst episodes of the original series. <laughs> but it's the one where Kirk comes out in the end and, and basically delivers a, a Captain America kind of speech. I mean, talking about... Talking about what the Constitution says, talking about what our laws actually say, and how we shouldn't just recite them as words, we should live them. We should actually think about what they're trying to say and what they're trying to do. Yeah. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible episode. <laughs> but the way I talked about it when we actually did it for Mission Log was Act 4 is Kirk going up to the screen, tapping on the glass and saying, hey, this is what this means and this is how to live. Yeah. And that's what happens at the end of this episode as well. And so the stuff that you're talking about being sort of disappointed by... I was moved by the speech in the end, by the um, by the by the architect, by the ancient, by whatever that is. And to me, there's actually, I mean, again, you see it as them handing the answer, but there's something there's something sad. I mean, there's, there's mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. So here's the good news: we're ingenious. We've now come up with ways to do things that 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 the ancients didn't weren't sure that we were going to be able to do. Unfortunately, we didn't do it the way that they had hoped. They figured that we were working together in camaraderie and friendship and trying to figure out this answer. We have, in fact, figured out ways to get what we want just barely without killing each other. And so that's kind of a that's kind of a bummer. So the Picard stuff is kind of interesting. I'm honestly not sure if I agree with you that he has figured out how to deal with this stuff. That's what tapestry was supposed to teach him. There is no way that he should actually be allowed to keep his starship if he's going to blow off a conference because his friend died. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, it's like the times that Data has taken over the Enterprise before and they you know go off and do something else. And it turns out, oh, there was a good reason. But we're still going to have to court-martial you. Yeah. You know? I mean, that, I mean, there have been plenty of times, and we sort of forgive our characters because, well, they're our characters and we like them. Picard did not learn anything about his dealings with other people, I think, in this episode. You're saying he learned how to deal with regret. The way he dealt with regret was blowing off everything else that he was supposed to do and going <laughs> doing the thing that he said he wasn't going to go do. I mean, he's he's basically, you know, stuffing his bad feelings with activity. I didn't say he resolved the regret, but at least Deanna got to uh, confront him about his regret. Right. So. And he got to tell her, there's the door. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, seriously. Uh, Captain's I mean, prerogative. Yeah. Well, yes, but I'm not sure... I'm not sure the stuff we learned about Picard in this episode is actually stuff that's going to be helpful to us. Conversely, though, the one thing that kept going through my mind in this episode, and I think I've, uh, I think I've actually used this quote before on this episode, on this, uh, on this show, uh, it was the John F. Kennedy quote. Our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future, and we are all mortal. And that, I mean, that to me is, I mean, that that's what makes this a great episode is that they spent the last five minutes saying, hey, guess what, everybody? You're all from the same place. Look what you can do. Look what you could be. Look what you can become. And, um, you know, just keep in mind that, you know, even if you seem different, even if you're from different places, even if you look different, ultimately you're from the exact same place. And um, excellent. We're so glad that you finally got to get along. And now... uh, it would just be nice if we did. I think we're both going to agree that the messages hold up. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would say yes. Um, I certainly hope so. 
Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at roddenberry.com. Not just what Roddenberry is doing, but hey, some additional podcasts for you to listen to. There's Mission Log, of course. You know about us because you're listening right now. There's also Women at Warp and Priority One joining the Roddenberry family. And if you want to support Mission Log directly, you can go to patreon.com slash mission log. When you do that, we have some awesome Mission Log exclusive premiums to send you. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, you can check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Frame of Mind. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. You know, why can a Vulcan meet with a human and then make a Spock? If you want to make a Spock, you can. Um... <laughs> I want that on a T-shirt. I'm sorry. I want you that would, on a okay. T-shirt. If you want to make a Spock, you can. Yeah. Well, we, we've got a lot of T-shirts that we need to make now. Yeah, but yeah, I, I like that one. I like that a lot. And transmission.